This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Hi there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And from our office in Jerusalem, Brent Noctegal. Hello. This has been a tough week in the news in many ways. In today's program, we're going to discuss several stories that show just how violent, how cursed is this world that we live in. It's important to look at these things, not to turn away, but to recognize and acknowledge reality. We'll talk about this as we proceed with this tour of events around the world, snapshots of a world that is approaching ever closer to the catastrophic end of this present age. We'll start in America with the horrific school shooting this past Tuesday in Texas. For this, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, this is really a tragic week in American history. They had the second biggest uh, school shooting ever in Uvalde, Texas, on Tuesday when an, an 18-year-old walked into um, a local schoolroom uh, with a bulletproof vest on and two guns uh, and just started shooting. I think they're actually saying that he was in there for, for 40 minutes now before before the police finally apprehended him, killed 19 students, uh, mostly third and fourth graders, uh, and at least two teachers. I, I've even heard some reports of a third teacher. So there's like 21, 22 people, more than, uh, more than any school shooting um, ever. Uh, except the the Sandy Hook shooting in uh, in 2012, and so like I said, this happened on Tuesday. So they've had a few days for for details to come out uh, about the shooter, and uh, he definitely fits the the stereotypical profile of a school shooter. Uh, parents separated uh, into violent video games. Uh, had several runs with law enforcement before, uh, really didn't know his father hardly at all, uh, had the police intervene several times due to like uh, violent confrontations with his uh, mother, uh, actually had moved out of his mother's house, was living with his grandparents, uh, and I guess his grandfather, his grandfather, his mother, and his father all were, were ex-cons, all had uh, a felony record. And so between the video games and the broken family life, uh, he, he definitely checks, uh, the shooter checks all the boxes that you uh, expect from someone who commits a mass shooting except for I, I haven't heard anything whether he was on any uh medication that's that's normally the three big things you see in common with school shooters is that like broken family violent video games some form of a uh, uh of medication that they're on mm -hmm. I've really appreciated uh, Stephen Flurry's coverage on the Trumpet Daily this past week. Uh, he's just been talking about the uh, the response to this shooting. And you have uh, Joe Biden going out there and immediately attacking the gun lobby. You have a lot of people uh, basically using this, as they have so many of these incidents, uh, to attack guns in spite of very little information that they had uh, about 
the facts of how he obtained the gun and so on and ignoring the family breakdown the violent video games some of those other factors that you're describing uh those are completely ignored and uh we're having a conversation about what do we do about the nra right i mean that is a definitely something you see pretty much with all school shootings that would be nice if you could have more of a conversation i was talking with someone in the office before too they're like back in the 50s 60s when like my parents or grandparents went to school it was pretty common for at least where i grew up uh for people to bring guns to school they usually had hunter safeties where your hunter safety classes were held at the school your riflery classes were held at the school uh, a lot of parents were fine with uh, their teenager putting a gun rack in the back of their pickup truck if they were 16, 17, 18, and just taking the gun to school themselves. So it's actually like the number of kids with guns at school is like lower than it's ever been. But the mass shootings are are way higher. And so that is because of these things that the, the media doesn't want to talk about. Uh, medication, broken families, violent video games, violent entertainment. Uh, and yet the um, the public discussion wants to focus on the 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 gun laws this was a uh, uh, the school shooting took place just after lunch on tuesday but by by about dinner time this is what uh barack obama had said he says we're also angry for them nearly 10 years after sandy hook and 10 days after buffalo our country is paralyzed not by fear but by a gun lobby and a political party that have shown no willingness to act in any way that might help prevent these tragedies. And so he's putting the blame squarely on uh, the National Rifle Association and the Republican Party for not passing uh, passing stricter gun laws. But like you said, like said in this particular case, I think he did buy his guns legally, but he wouldn't have been allowed to kept them in his grandfather's house because he was a con anyway. So there were already some laws broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the idea that another law would have prevented this shooting is uh, is just not backed up by the facts. Now, having a stable family life would have prevented this shooting, but no one wants to to talk about that. It's qu- very sh- quickly shifting to the the gun control uh, debate. Now, actually, by the time this program airs, uh, we'll probably have heard more comments from Donald Trump's take on that. He had a meeting scheduled today in Texas with the National Rifle Association. Uh, he'd scheduled it before the shooting took place. And then, of course, everyone's asking him, "Is like, well, are you going to cancel your shooting out of the school shooting? He's like, no, there's no, there's no reason for me to cancel uh, cancel my uh, meeting with the National Rifle Association. And so he's he's going to talk about what happened at Uvalde today and will likely take a very opposite stance of what Barack Obama took. But um but in the meantime uh after uh Obama kind of set the talking points about the gun lobby, uh, Joe Biden gave a speech the next day where he's really parroting those same points, uh blaming the shooting on the gun lobby, uh whatever that is. Uh and the um the Republican Party, uh, and then even working on some uh, executive actions. I don't think he's taken any executive actions against gun control now, but he's definitely taken some executive actions against uh, the police. Uh, the police that actually could have hurt this case because of their video footage, I mean, it's pretty shocking if you see the video footage, is that the police were basically like wandering around the parking lot 
for something like 40 minutes while the shooting was going on. Uh, they wouldn't go in to stop the shooter, and they actually, I think, pinned down several parents who wanted to go in and stop the shooter themselves. Uh, they said they were waiting for uh, a SWAT team. Uh, and now these executive orders that uh, Biden signing is probably going to make them wait quite a bit longer for that SWAT team. Uh, he's, uh, he's basically... The text of this executive order he signed does two big things. One, it creates a national registry uh, of officers who've been involved in um, in like shooting of minorities or or or, or being overly brutal to minorities. Uh, and the shooter in this case was Hispanic. Uh, and two, it basically says that local police departments can't receive excess military equipment unless they're following directives being issued to them about training from the federal government. Uh, so it's definitely kind of a, a, a way to nationalize police that they said, like you said, hey, if you don't uh, get in uh, behind the Justice Department on its new training exercises for all police officers around the nation, you're not going to get the equipment you're going to need um, to have the SWAT teams like the one you were waiting for to go in and stop shooters like this. You're going to have to go in, uh, you're going to have to go in by themselves. Uh, it's not very difficult to connect a few dots here. When you have uh, President Obama, former President Obama, tweeting out this uh, message about the George Floyd incident from two years ago and trying to somehow perversely link what happened there with this situation in Uvalde um, and the, the, his his general undermining of the police force and law enforcement within the United States uh, using incidents like what happened with George Floyd to cast aspersions on the police, to undermine public confidence in the police. There's just been a lot of attack against law enforcement, and you've had a lot of a lot of police officers who have left the field, you have low recruitment rates, you have a very, uh, you know, pretty widespread low morale among police forces, uh, specifically because of attacks like this. And you have these officers on the scene in a, in a live shooting incident uh, where they are more interested in preventing parents from intervening than they are in stopping a shooter who's who's locked into a room with a bunch of third and fourth graders uh i mean it really it really is disturbing to see the people who are meant to be protecting uh in a situation like that not doing so and uh but you you can't you can't look at what happened, say, down there without thinking about uh, just how much of a how much under assault police have been and law enforcement in general has been uh, for the last 10 years. Right. They haven't talked with any of these particular officers about why they were waiting in the parking lot for 40 minutes while the shooting was going on. But they have talked with other officers and in, uh, in places like Chicago who said that they are much more reluctant to act since the George Floyd shooting because they're they're worried if they do anything that's perceived as brutal towards a, a criminal who's a minority that they could be prosecuted for it. And so, I mean, that's definitely a theory worth <laughs> investigating is the fact that you this uh, this shooter was a Hispanic 
shooter. And so you want to like, so it, is there a reluctance because of well, that? I, I guess yeah. even I don't know if if the race had anything to do with it, but I I, I think it it takes a lot of courage uh, for a police officer in a situation like that to actually step up and take action. You know, you know that you're putting your life on the line, and for a police officer to be able to do that, he has to have a certain uh, like belief in the job and an, and an understanding that he's there to do a job. I mean, I, I would not want to be in that person's shoes. That's not, it's why I didn't sign up to be a police officer that I think it would be an extraordinarily difficult job, but to know that your, your, the confidence in your position is being undermined in so many ways from the top, from the leadership at the top of the country to even within the, within a community, there are, you know, there are a lot of people who, uh, they, their view of the police has gone down considerably because of exactly the kind of attacks that uh, that President Obama uh, mounted in in during his administration and even with this with this tweet, the the executive orders that Joe Biden is uh, implementing where he's saying you have to do things exactly our way and as you said kind of moving things away from the local level to a more of a national level, all of those things I think have a suppressive effect on the police officer who's in that situation and trying to decide, well, what do I, what do I do here? Right. And then, um, yeah, you've got, and then you said, yeah, we're moving. Definitely. That seems to be what the big thing that's going to happen after, uh, after this shooting, like what's, what, what's the government going to do is, I mean, there's going to be a lot of talk about gun control. You've already got Michael Moore saying we need to abolish the second amendment. Uh, the Democrats don't have the public support to do that and so it's probably going to be unlikely there's going to be any huge changes in uh gun laws after this shooting but there's already been some big changes in policing laws look moving towards a national registry moving towards hey you don't get um weapons or equipment if you don't do what we say moving towards the federal government really stepping in and uh and taking over that which is really that's kind of the Democrats' dream goal here: is you have a federal, a disarmed population, mm-hmm. and a federal police force, right? Um, which you, you, you'd end up something like China, which I guess in China, like I said, mass shootings between civilians are rarer than they are here. Now, mass shootings between like the government putting you in a concentration camp are much more common, mm-hmm. um, and so you've got that that technique for for government that risk for government tyranny that comes from a national police force like that i mean we can put uh the book uh, america under attack in the the show notes that has a, a pretty hefty segment i think i think i calculated it up once that something like five percent of that book is about uh like gun control second amendment mm-hmm. government tyranny uh type topics that the um, that the biden administration is looking at moving the nation uh, towards using um, using incidences like what happened to George Floyd two years ago, uh, and now this uh, this shooting in Uvalda uh, this week as the pretext. Well, I would encourage uh, our listeners to listen to the Trumpet Daily from this past week. I think Stephen Flurry has done an excellent job at pinpointing. The real issues that have been exposed in in this shooting, he talks about just the the rise in demonic activity, 
uh, and the the breakdown of the family and some of these uh, issues that that uh, most people are simply unwilling to touch in light of a, a situation like this. It is truly uh, heartbreaking to to think of these families that have lost children uh, because of the uh, this deranged shooter, and the, there's much bigger issues here than uh, than what the the Biden administration wants to wants to point to. Um, but we will link to that article uh, uh, that Stephen Flurry wrote this week. What motivates school shooters in the in the program, as well as um, America under attack and a couple of articles about just how the police also are under attack. Thank you very much for that, Andrew. We'll move now over to Ukraine, some stunning perspective on the scale of the devastation Russia is wreaking on the Ukrainian people. For this story, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is now grinding into its fourth month, and this war is changing the world. We've got a new Iron Curtain that's emerging in Europe. The, uh, the economic war is deepening with just terrible implications for food insecurity around the globe. And then one of the major developments that I think hasn't been getting as much press is the mass movement of people that this is causing. So at the start of this war, back on February 23rd, Ukraine was a country of 44 million people. But now, as of May 27th, it's down to 37.4 million people. So that's the largest movement of people in this kind of a time frame ever recorded in human history. In three months, more than 6.6 million people have fled Ukraine. So that's just unprecedented. This is bigger than the exodus of Israel back in Moses's day. Although that, you know, that did happen faster than this present movement. But this Ukrainian exodus is just off the charts. And we may still be nowhere near the end of it. You know, who knows how long this, this Russian insanity will continue and just keep on driving people out. Uh, but then on top of the Ukrainians who have left Ukraine, you've got another 8 million who are displaced within the country. So 6.6 million refugees plus 8 million internally displaced means you're looking at one third of the total population that have fled their homes. Just a stunning number in both absolute and relative figures there. And just to give these numbers a little bit of uh, perspective, back in 2015, when Europe was suffering the migrant crisis from the Middle East, there were about 1.3 million refugees that came in. And that was one of the biggest stories of the decade. But those 1.3 million people entered Europe over the course of a whole year. So what we're talking about right now is five times that number from Ukraine, and it's happened in just three months. Where are all of these people going? Well, the bulk of them are going west into Europe. Uh, they fled mainly into Poland, Hungary, Moldova, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, and Romania. And then since Poland, Hungary, and Slovakia are part of the Schengen area, that means that there are no internal you know, border controls between them and other EU nations. So many of the Ukrainians have moved from those countries further west into Europe. And then some of the Ukrainians have also gone north into Belarus, which is not a great place to go right now if you want to be free of mm. Vladimir Putin's tyranny since he's basically completed a soft annexation of Belarus. Uh, but some have gone there. And then probably the most tragic category, well, it is the most tragic by far, are the Ukrainians who have gone east into Russia, the belly of the beast. 
This is tragic because the bulk of them have been forcibly relocated. New data this week says that about 1.4 million Ukrainians have been rounded up and forcibly deported to Russia, mostly to very remote towns um, in Siberia and places like that, where it would be very difficult for these impoverished people to ever find the means to get back home. Um, And almost a quarter of a million of these are children. Children who have been forced into Russia, with a huge number of those being children who were separated from their families, and now they're pushed into Russian families. A spokesman for one of Ukraine's human rights organizations said, when our children are taken out, the Russians deprive our country of the future, and they teach our children there the history that Russian President Vladimir Putin has told everyone. So, you know, it's easy to, to see how these children could soon be indoctrinated, just as so many Russians are. And this is a war crime. According to the 1949 Geneva Conventions, it's a, it's a serious war crime to mass transfer civilians during a conflict to the territory of the occupying power. Uh, but we know that Russia is suffering a demographic collapse right mm-hmm. now. Its own people are not multiplying at rates that are high enough to sustain the, the population, the, the economy. So now to mitigate that, Putin is saying, war crime or not, let's abduct these Ukrainian children and others, and then our population will get a little stronger. It's it's truly staggering to uh, to contemplate the the scale of what we're talking about uh, and the the horror of what we're talking about. Ukraine really is uh, never going to be the same after uh, after what has has happened here. what what do you uh, take away from this? Uh, looking at this from a, a biblical prophecy standpoint, uh, what do you think is most important for us to uh, to take? Yeah, well, I mean, like you said, these these events happening by the hand of the Russians are just evil beyond words. Just like the the shooting that Andrew just talked about, just evil beyond contemplation, really. And it's deeply unsettling to talk about it and to think about it. But uh, but the Bible tells us that we should not turn away from these kinds of things. That's in Isaiah thirty three eighteen, where it says that our hearts must meditate terror. And that's something that Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry spoke about a few years back. He said, quote, We can't just shut it out of our minds and go watch television or read a book or go see some sporting event or whatever. God says, I want you to think about it, and I want you to understand it, and I want you to proclaim it to this world. End quote. So, you know, as much as we would prefer to escape into entertainment or whatever, as much as we would prefer not to think about this Russian war and the Texas school shooting and everything mm-hmm. else, these hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian children being slaughtered and abused and in many cases rent away from their families and deported to some Russian family that very likely will not treat them well. Um, as revolting as it is to to consider all of that, we need to meditate on it. We need to contemplate the evil and the suffering of this world. And, and we do have an article. It's called Why You Need to See the Horror in Ukraine that uh, explains this command in Isaiah. And it, and it goes through Mr. Flurry's comments about it. And it really gives some valuable insight into this barbaric Russian war. When you understand uh, just how devastating the... Uh time of tribulation is that's going to be ahead of us really what's happening in ukraine is a tiny foretaste of uh, the kind of mass scale violence displacement genocide that's going to be taking place and the mind really does it it, we're just repelled by uh, thinking about that type of thing it is truly important to consider that and it's it's all 
spelled out in prophecy as it is specifically so that we we will think about it and we'll we'll think about how our choices are going to affect whether we're plunged into that kind of violence uh it it helps us to to understand just where the choices that mankind is making is leading humanity uh if you turn away from it if and, and that really is the the tendency in human nature it's it's almost to to become more absorbed in the distractions and anything that will kind of take your mind off of those things uh but the more you do that the more inevitable those prophecies are uh, to be fulfilled rather than rather than taking the steps to try to uh correct our behavior and to move away from that or to to uh, enable ourselves to receive protection then we become victimized by the very behavior that's causing these kinds of of problems so we we do really appreciate you bringing that to us jeremiah it is uh very important for us to think about we'll link to that article uh that Richard wrote why you need to see the horror in Ukraine. Violence and terrorism are increasing in Africa. Now, France and Denmark are pulling their troops out. However, there is one European country that is committed to remaining in the region. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, the uh, second story that I plan on talking about today, I think, follows on from what Jeremiah was talking on. And, and in some ways, this follows on from what uh, the conversation you guys were having just now, and that there's a, a pretty big unreported catastrophe or problems rolling out in North Africa. Uh, there's just a whole arc of radical Islamist violence throughout a whole load of of Northwest Africa, throughout Mali. Just this morning, there was news about 50 people killed in a gunman attack in Burkina Faso. Uh, and, and those kind of attacks are almost becoming routine to the point that they, they don't make the news very much. But Niger has a, has a big problem with uh, militants and Islamists. So all across this region, uh, it's uh, an area that there's a lot of instability, and it's an area that fairly rarely makes the international news that uh, you mentioned France has pulled out. Some people have talked about Fra Mali as kind of being the potential to be France's uh, Afghanistan because of the way that they've been hmm. withdrawing troops. But uh, this area really is, I mean, it's critical to watch from the, say, the human perspective. It's also cr a critical uh, area for, for Bible prophecy, where you know, one of the keynote prophecies that we talk about is this uh, co coming confrontation between radical Islam and Europe. And we've got this, this, this Daniel 11 we've talked about again and again, right from the trumpet's earliest issues, where it talks about the king of the north clashing against the king of the south. Uh, and all the way from the early 1990s, we've said, okay, well, the king of the south is radical Islam led by Iran. The king of the north is Europe. Uh, and there are, there are good reasons why we've said this. We have a booklet on that that goes into those reasons. But we've said, well, watch for Europe to end up taking the lead uh, in the fight against radical Islam, because that's what this this scripture tells us. And for a, a long time, Russia's made, or Europe has been maybe a junior partner to the United States in confronting radical Islam. But it's really in North Africa where you see this changing the most quickly. What happens in this area ends up very directly and very quickly affecting Europe. You have unrest in this area while they travel north, they get on boats, they start landing in Italy. Uh, it starts causing political and economic chaos throughout Europe. And we've also been saying, well, watch for Germany to be the lead power in this King of the North, uh, this European power. They're going to be the top dog. They're going to be the main drivers. And in a lot of ways, 
France is a bigger military power uh, than Germany for the last few, you know, the last few decades. But again, in this area, you're seeing Germany being the one that has been the more tenacious and that is is uh, is taking the lead. So, with that in mind, we're seeing more and more where uh, uh, France is leaving this area, but Germany is remaining. So, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, on May 23rd he announced that Germany is going to continue their mission in Mali, and they're actually going to send 300 extra troops. They're going to shuffle things around. They're going to move some troops that they've got there under the EU mission away from Mali and into Niger uh, that's next door. So I think, and then they're bringing in, they're kind of replacing those with 300 extra troops that are going to Mali, but they're going to be part of the United Nations peacekeeping force. But that's 1,400 German troops that they've got permission to have in Mali, that is by far the biggest uh, overseas military deployment. Uh, they're, they're as both as EU peacekeepers and as United Nations peacekeepers, they're doing, you know, they're training soldiers. They're having a leadership role that is well outside or well beyond just even uh, the simple numbers. So they're kind of put their, they're hedging their bets a bit now. They're also having, they used to kind of have all of their eggs in the Mali basket. They responded to some of the unrest within Mali and the fact that Mali has now been taken over by a, this kind of military junta that, uh, or junta that, uh, that doesn't really like France or the West. So that they, they see the potential for some problems there. So they're hedging their bets by setting up a major presence in Niger as well. But this is all about them trying to set up bases that they can use to confront radical Islam across this whole area. This really has been France's uh, main arena uh, in in Africa. The fact that they're they're pulling out, that they've uh, decided that they've they've had enough, uh, and that Germany of all European nations is saying oh, we're willing to uh, to remain. Uh, that does seem quite significant. Yes, it is. I mean, this this whole general area of northwestern Africa is kind of, in general, French post-colonial territory. This was part of the French Empire. Uh, and so and, and then even in the post-colonial period, they've had major, major links to this area. They've retained a whole load of military bases across the region. You know, not every country in this region is, was formerly part of the French Empire, but even so, they've been the, the lead European power there, even to the point of getting involved with coups or uh, getting rid of leaders that they that they haven't liked. They have been heavily involved. So, so to see them kind of stepping back and saying, well, we think we're done here, we don't really have the wherewithal to keep this up. And then to see Germany step forwards and say, well, we're staying, uh, we'll make sure we're in the lead here. Uh, in this particular country in Mali, I think Germany has been in the lead for several years, but then for them to, they're doing this increasingly across the region, that is something worth taking note of. It's part of this, you know, Germ this trend of Germany taking more leadership within the European military. It's maybe in a theater that people pay less attention to, but it's a, another important sign of, of that shift within Germany. And again, this whole area, it's not just about the troop presence. Uh, you've also got things like the G5 Sahel Force, which is a European-funded alliance uh, from five local countries. So it's not just Europe, Europe having their own troops on the board, they on the ground. They also pay African countries to put together these kind of pan-national forces that they control. Uh, and that's another significant element of, uh, of European intervention here. And Germany obviously is very focused on creating bases of support in this region. 
Now, looking at this from a prophetic standpoint, Germany's military presence in North Africa, this is really part of, uh, it has troops all the way through North Africa and the Middle East that it has positioned there quite strategically uh, in a way that really does align with biblical prophecy. Absolutely. We have a, a great article from all the way from about July 2013 called The Whirlwind Prophecy that talks about you just even dig into the details of Daniel chapter 11 and it tells us how this would play out. Uh, it talks about, it says that Germany would surround this radical Islamist king of the south like a whirlwind. Uh, and this word whirlwind, you know, it denotes part of the ferocity of the attack that comes when the king of the north really does strike out against the king of the south. But also it carries these connotations of being surrounded and coming from all sides. Uh, and so it's a prophecy that they would surround the positions of the king of the south. And Africa is a very important element in that. And it's just fascinating. You see whirlwind and then you, you can turn to, say, German military academic journals and you'll see generals talking about how, well, there's a whole ring of fire around this area and we need to set up bases to be able to contain it. It's the same kind of language. And they've been very clear that, uh, that that's the purpose of Mali, uh, that they they're not necessarily just concerned about Mali for Mali's sake or Niger for Niger's sake. In some ways, what they're most concerned about is, is Libya. And they're thinking that, well, we might need to get more involved in Libya in the future. In order to do that, it's going to help to have local bases, local militaries that we have cooperated with to know the terrain, to be able to operate in that environment, uh, to have uh, supply chains in place all of this. And so they're very clear that these military interventions are about preparing bases for a future assault uh, against radical Islam. And that is exactly what Daniel 11 talks about. So more and more, we're seeing Daniel 11, kind of all the pieces being set up for that to be fulfilled in just a fantastically detailed way. So that article, The Whirlwind Prophecy, will, will enable you to just to really dig deeply into this, this prophecy and really see uh, in, in fantastic detail, Bible prophecy fulfilled on your news. All right. Well, thank you for that. We'll link to that as well as uh, an article about this specific uh, deployment. Germany doubles down on Africa deployments by Daniel DeSanto. That's up on the website right now. We thank you very much for that, Richard. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. We're going to take a short break. Coming up, a new vivid look at the atrocities taking place in China with its Uyghur population. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. A top Israeli defense researcher says that Iran is maintaining a covert presence in the Red Sea. For this, we'll turn to Brent Noctegal. Yeah, people might remember that there was uh, an attack on a, a commercial vessel inside the Red Sea by Israel last year. It was an Iranian vessel called the Saviz, and it exposed the fact that Iran was using large 
uh, commercial vessels, converting them to military bases, uh, basically a floating military base, and and plonking them stationary right there in the middle of the southern part of the Red Sea. And Israel destroyed the Seviz, but according to Michael Seagal, who's a senior analyst at the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs, Iran has replaced that ship with a new ship. This is called the Shahid Radaki. And so this is a, a forward operating base. Uh, it's equipped with uh, speedboats, fast boats that are lowered, that are on top of the boat that can be lowered uh, into the Red Sea to to transport weapons or or be used as attack uh, attack attack vessels against shipping through the Red Sea. They can be used to smuggle weapons to the Houthis, which are actually fighting on behalf of the Iranians uh, inside Yemen at the southern portion of the Red Sea as well. And so this is just really interesting. I think it harkens back a lot to what Richard was talking about in the first half, where we have this this coming clash between the Islamists here in this region of North Africa and German-led Europe. And here we have in the Red Sea, we have Iran setting up its own bases right in the center this 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 boat is is um, not far off the Eritrean coast um, so right here between Eritrea the Horn of Africa the northern part of the Horn of Africa uh, and Yemen and and it's 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 a reconnaissance base so you can it can gather intelligence from this location all the shipping coming in and out uh, as I said it's used to smuggle weapons to the to the Houthis in Yemen as well and it's just a way that Iran can expand its area of operations into this critical um, naval gateway uh, into which leads up to into the Mediterranean. Talk to us about uh, what Gerald Flurry has said about this very thing. He has drawn attention to prophecy that points to Iran really having a vested interest in the Red Sea. Yeah, and I this is this is a prophecy that Richard mentioned. This is found in Daniel chapter eleven. It's very interesting because it labels certain nations that are going to be allied with the Islamist, the Iranian-backed Islamist, and these include all the nations um, that are along the the western side of the Red Sea, starting from top to bottom, going from Egypt, and you have Sudan in the middle, and then going to Ethiopia and even Eritrea. Um, Ethiopia, of course, is still. Uh, embroiled in a civil war, half the nation's Christian. You've got a lot of Muslims there as well. We expect Iran to gain, in some fashion, the upper hand there through its alliances with different Islamist groups. Um, and, and and so you see this really unstable area, the Bible says, is eventually going to fall into the control of radical Islam. And it's so critical if you look at a map, as Mr. Flurry says, and has said, if you look at map, at, at of these nations, where are they? They're along the Red Sea passageway, and he's spoken about how Iran does want to um, have the ability to to shut down world trade through this critical choke point. The Suez Canal, of course, in the north is very important, uh, but the Bab el Mandab, the Gate of Tears, is the southern entrance to the Red Sea, and that's why it's so invested in its fight with the Houthis, uh, supporting the Houthis. Um, so Iran is gathering the ability right now to completely destabilize shipping through this area, world trade through this area. You've got oil that goes up to Europe through here, massive amounts of trade, almost a trillion dollars of trade between Europe and China that goes through this area. And so Europe is vulnerable to 
a power that would seek to jeopardize and make it dangerous for trade to come through here. And so that's what the Bible says is going to happen. And here you have Iran really expanding its area of operations to the Southern Red Sea period. I, I do think it's interesting what Richard said, you know, some of these German troops are heading towards Niger now, um, which is you know, further towards the east, uh, I think you just have one other African or two other African nations in between that and getting towards the Red Sea coast where you, you find where the Islamists are going to take control. And so you are getting um, these two powers, these two major powers are becoming closer and closer to this point of contact. And and so when you see Iran setting up a base here in the southern Red Sea, uh, I think those biblical prophecies definitely come alive. Where would you send people for more information? Mr. Flurry's article, Iran is getting a stranglehold on the Middle East, is a great place to go. All right. Thank you for that, Brent. Heartbreaking images coming out of China. Evidence of the brutality of its concentration camps for its Uyghur population. For this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, there was a leak published on Tuesday, and it's uh, just a huge collection of private material from the Chinese Communist Party, all related to their treatment of the Uyghur Muslims who live in the uh, the northwestern Xinjiang part of China. So this uh, this trove includes speeches, images, documents, and spreadsheets, all, all kinds of things like that that are just all about how the CCP or Chinese Communist Party has been dealing with this minority group. And it does expose just how brutal the Chinese have been. I think the most damning photos show Uyghurs shackled and blindfolded and apparently being tortured. The documents also talk about a very rigid shoot-to-kill policy for anyone who tries to escape from these camps. There are also revelations in there about guilt by association. So many of the Uyghurs are detained just because one of their relatives has been you know, deemed to be a potential threat. And you can be deemed to be a potential threat even for something like growing a beard or having an Islamic lecture on your phone. So if your uncle grows a beard, watch out because that could be enough to have you targeted by the CCP. Um, So none of this information is necessarily new. Mm -hmm. But what we had heard about it before came mainly from, you know, just from claims that Uyghurs made people who had been in the camps and then had been released and then talked about it without much hard evidence beyond the scars on their bodies. But now we have rock-solid evidence from the Chinese Communist Party itself, their own documents and photos that confirm the way that China is suppressing its Uyghurs with with violence and just violating their human rights in many ways. And what is uh, China trying to accomplish with these camps? Well, the Chinese Communist Party that, that rules the country right now, they don't want religion to play any role in the lives of any of the Chinese people. You know, the, the Communist Party wants to be the only authority over the Chinese people. They don't want to be in competition with any god or priest or, or mm. imam. So the CCP feels very threatened by Islam in particular, just because that's known to be a religion that can be a very potent force in the lives of uh, many of its adherents. So the the Chinese claim that these camps are just meant to teach the Uyghurs job skills and Mandarin language skills and to eradicate Islamic extremism. And it is true that acts of Islamic terrorism have been carried out in Xinjiang. So you can see why the government would want to address that. But what's happening 
goes far beyond combating terrorism and, and into just barbaric human rights uh, violations. So there was already plenty of evidence before disproving the CCP's claims about these camps just being designed to teach job skills and language skills. But this new trove really obliterates all those claims. Mm. So looking at this from a prophetic standpoint, um, what we're seeing from it kind of reminds me of some of what we were talking about in the first half of the program. Just just seeing the uh, how barbaric man can be to man. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, Xi Jinping, he's he's the head of the Chinese Communist Party, and he has vast almost entirely unchecked powers over China's 1.4 billion people. And history shows us over and over again that when a human government is given that kind of unchecked power, then genocide and just egregious human rights violations, those kinds of things are virtually inevitable. And it's often because the leader feels that violence is justified in order to build what he promises will be a better world. You know, he, he says, my vision for the future is beautiful mm -hmm. and I have to use force, absolute force to get rid of anyone who works against it so that I can make my vision a reality. Um, but when authoritarians start to be driven by that kind of thinking, it invariably leads to just unfathomable suffering for many, many people. And Bible prophecy does reveal that what we're seeing right now in places like Xinjiang and in Ukraine, like we talked about in the first half, all of that is just the start. The Bible says that the world will very soon be in a new era called the times of the Gentiles, when brutal authoritarians will dominate the world. And uh, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Daryl Fleury has written all about this fast-approaching new era in an article that's called The Climax of Man's Rule Over Man. He actually specifically mentions the CCP's abuses in Xinjiang in that article, and he shows that it's just one more indication that the world is headed quickly toward those times of the Gentiles. So, you know, that article was written back in 2020, but it definitely has a lot of fresh relevance now with this new trove of, mm -hmm. of leaked documents. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jeremiah. These leaked pictures are putting pressure on the German government, which has been increasing its trade relationship and other ties with China. For this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, I feel like this is the same story that we've been talking about quite a lot for the last few weeks when it comes to Germany on Ukraine, except now it's uh, it's China and, and the Uyghur Muslims. Uh, and there's been a, a, a spotlight shone on Germany's relationship with Russia. Uh, and that's really exposed a lot of, of, of dangerous things really about modern Germany. Now we see this is helping shine the same kind of a light on Germany's relations with China. And to their credit, it's German media that is kind of leading the charge here saying, well, you know, we're complicit in what these photos are saying we need to ask ourselves some some difficult questions so spiegel for example uh, when they covered all of these pictures coming out they talked they they wrote germany has made itself economically dependent on a brutal dictatorship the xinjiang police files also confront the german government in berlin with uncomfortable questions and again they put it in context of okay we've had the relationship with russia exposed we need to look at our relationship with with China as well. And uh, you know, Euro, Euro intelligence, they also kind of got into some of the stats about just how heavily involved America is, oh, sorry, Germany is with China, that some of 
and in this case, that it's just like with Russia. It's been German businesses that have been leading the way in this relationship. And they've been the ones, you know, it was as Angela Merkel was caught on mic saying she didn't want to break with Russia because of the power of German business. And we had a whole Trumpet article where Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flory went through all of the business ties that uh, these German companies have with Russia, the way that that's bent German politics and the direction of Russia for going back years. You could, you could easily write exactly the same article uh, about China, and maybe there's a good case for for doing that, where all of these big companies uh, have these kind of relationships. So Euro, Euro intelligence crunches some of the numbers, and uh, for example, uh, the uh, some of the big car giants, Volkswagen, forty percent of their car sales come from China. Mercedes. Uh, 30% or a third of its car sales come from China. I think it was a few years ago. It was an almost comical, uh, almost comical situation where I think China, uh, Mercedes just picked some relatively innocent sounding, you know, inane quote from the Dalai Lama and put it on one of their car ads. And China was not at all happy, and they very quickly issued a groveling apology. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so these these businesses have really played a leading role in bringing. Uh, bringing China or bringing uh, Germany to this point. Well, yeah, America is in precisely the same situation. And there have been some pretty prominent examples uh, from the the entertainment industry. Uh, I think even car manufacturers and even those who are pushing for electric cars in this country are dependent on batteries and uh, rare earth minerals uh, from China. Uh, And in general, the trade relationships are strong enough that uh, there are many businesses that have found that it's it's basically impossible for them to do business without uh, without being beholden to China. And China is really taking advantage of that in a lot of cases and and insisting that uh, businesses do do things their way if they want to maintain those kinds of operations with China. We actually heard a. Uh, uh, a message from uh, Mr. Gerald Flurry recently where he was talking about Abraham Lincoln. He was talking about his commitment to uh, the Declaration of Independence and this this anti-slavery stance that he took and basically staked his life on uh, in commitment to actually realizing the proposition that all men are created equal. And uh, he made the point of just how... Uh, how courageous Lincoln was to to take the stance that he did uh, in the Gettysburg Address. He he talked about the uh, the the sacrifice that those soldiers had made in the in their um, in their trying to realize that ideal. Uh, com- contrasting with these companies that are willing to do business with this organization uh, or this this country that is enslaving people today this is happening today and they're putting their uh, business interests and their bottom line ahead of the ideal that all men are created equal that that driving that greed that drives that kind of activity uh really is extremely pernicious and these kinds of things wouldn't be going on to near the scale that they are there are more slaves today than there have ever been in the world uh specifically because of a uh an unwillingness to stand up to this type of activity. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I think that's a really important point that it, that German companies are not unique. No, uh, this isn't just a German problem by any means. And 
you know, it, it, it exposes it, it's such a it's a great subject for exposure you know you you see some of these these companies that that kind of posture about being so nice and moral and, mm-hmm. and they they really get up on their high horse and and say well morals really matter to us if you want to reveal the truth behind those statements look at those companies relationship with china and it exposes some of these woke companies and then it exposes a whole load of these german companies as well when uh, mr gerald flurry was writing on the uh, like some of these companies relationships with russia you know, he was quoting uh, from you know Siemens's press releases and things like this, where they would talk about never again, and he even said in that article, "Well, you know, okay, have, have Siemens have they really uh, embraced never again? Have they really kind of learned their lesson? Where okay, we're never going to uh, to get in, involved in in slave labor again? Well, again, just well, let's just go back and have a look. What's their relationship?" With China, are they working with a country that actually uses concentration camps? And in many cases, they're incredibly involved in uh, these different German concentration camps or these different Chinese concentration camps, uh, just like just like the U.S. companies. I think the one area where maybe it is a little bit more unique in Germany is the political influence that these businesses have. I think in the U.S., it kind of goes. The, the 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 far left politicians influence the businesses, and I think in Germany it's more the other way around that the businesses uh, influence government and foreign policy. I think in the latest trumpet print, the one that's just going to press, Mr. Flurry had a quote in one of his articles on Russia, just talking about how uh, this kind of German business association that, that that deals with trade with Russia is is more powerful than something like the NRA. It's this. Uh, really powerful lobby group that dictates government policy. And you see this with Germany's relationship with with China. Uh, I think Angela Merkel, I believe, visited China more than any other country. Mm. And you, know, you don't see Joe Biden constantly making making visits to China, not that Joe Biden's a perfect president by any means. I'm just making the point that this business relationship has led to a cozy political relationship between uh, between Germany and and China, and again, this subject just reveals the uh, the duplicity with all of that uh, foreign policy there too. You know, Bible prophecy tells us that you'd have this Nazi spirit within Germany that would go underground and that would come back. And Mr. Flurry is focused on the way that German business leaders promise to play a key part in that process, and that I think is what we're seeing exposed in China. And then even beyond that, Isaiah chapter twenty-three has a prophecy mm-hmm. about this mart of nations, about this trading relationship. Uh, you look at the names in the Bible that are mentioned there, and you can you delve into that. It's referring to this European alliance, and it's referring to them getting together with. China and uh, forming this massive trade relationship, which they then use to target other powers, to cut off other nations from world trade. And this this situation with the Uyghurs is shining a light, exposing this Germany rising from the underground and exposing this growing relationship between Europe and China that is really integral to end time Bible prophecy. Well, thank you, Richard. We will uh, point to the the article from Gerald Fleury. He, he was talking about rising from the German underground. Uh, we also have uh, an article coming up on thetrumpet.com, Seeing China's Crimes, Germany Worries About Its Economy. Uh, and you can watch for that on the website as well. One final story, what looks to be another stunning anti-Israeli move by the Biden administration in America. For this, we'll go back to Brent Noctegal. 
Yes, this um, this story relates to a leak that was uh, shared from an intelligence agency of the United States um, uh, to the New York Times on Thursday regarding an action that Israel took, it believes, uh, last Sunday. Last Sunday, uh, an, an Iranian, the head of a special task force, the Unit 840 of the Quds Force, was uh, killed in Tehran. It looks like he was assassinated to... Um, a motorcyclist came up to his his car and and sprayed the car with bullets, uh, killing this man. There was just massive um, a massive funeral for him. He was a high profile individual in terms of what he accomplished for the Quds Force. This is Iran's elite elite unit that works outside of the nation. The head of that's Ishmael Khani, used to be Qasem Soleimani. Um, he was there at the funeral talking about how important this man was. Um, and so Israel does these uh, killings of important Iranians that are either furthering their uh, nuclear weapons program or members of this terrorist entity, the IRGC. And what Israel isn't necessarily coming out and saying that they didn't do it, but this is Israel's kind of way uh, of of working where they they make Iran know that they're not going to tolerate certain actions and they go in there quietly and they do kill kill an individual um, that that is critical to Iran's terrorist programs. Um, they don't necessarily want it getting out. They don't mind if people know uh, that someone like this was killed but and suspect Israel, yet they don't. They want some type, some type of plausible deniability behind it. And yet this is not what happened due to a leak to the New York Times. This was a leak um, that was basically saying that Israel informed the United States that they did this killing. And this is not something that Israel wants. Israel's furious about this. A number of members of the Knesset are coming out and saying that the relationship with the United States is based on trust. And if Israel can't trust senior military uh, people in the United States to keep keep trust, um, then what else can that, cannot they share with, with, with the Americans, especially to do with their number one enemy in the region, Iran, if they can't trust that the United States is not going to even share with the Iranians what Israel plans to do? This is a very dangerous situation uh, for is for Israel if they can't trust their number one ally. Um, I think it is also interesting to look at who this individual was. He was the head of a unit that is tasked with assassinating individuals. And right now in the United States, if you'll recall, um, the reason that there's a holdup in the nuclear deal that Iran isn't signing onto it is because they want the delisting of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps from the United States terrorist list. And uh, Joe Biden basically said, um, we will do that if you come out and just say that you're going to stop the targeted assassinations of Americans, stop targeting our U.S. citizens in America. And the Ayatollah said, no, we're not going to do that. And so the nuclear deal has got to hold up. But here you have Israel basically coming along and saying, well, we're going to expose to the world that Iran is actually doing this. Again, I think we talked about a couple of weeks ago how Brian Hook, um, Mike Pompeo, um, and even... Uh, John Bolton, they have a security detail following them around. Why? To protect them from Iranian assassination right now, costing millions of dollars to American taxpayers a year. And you have the Israelis basically exposing that, killing and taking down the top individual um, in Iran that's ordering and organizing these assassinations. You'd think that the Americans would be thankful for this, um, yet they weren't. At least in terms of in terms of they didn't give Israel a helping hand here. They exposed to the world what what Israel did, and Israel has to brace for some type of retaliatory action, some type of face saving action uh, from the Iranians, which the IRGC has said that they would do.
We're just wrapping up the uh, the work on the new version of America Under Attack, and there's several places in there where it talks about Barack Obama and, by extension, Joe Biden having this otherwise inexplicable pro-Iranian, anti-Israel bias uh, and the cause of that. What we're seeing here really is an expression of exactly that. Yeah, this is what we've come to expect, I think, from the Biden administration. Uh, definitely. I think um, like we can't wait for this booklet to come out that kind of exposes more of why the United States under Biden and Obama directly favor Iran over the longtime ally in Israel. Um, but until that time, I think people to understand more of the backstory here of why that this would be the case. I think a great article for them to read is the Barack Obama mystery uh, written by Mr. Flurry also. The Barack Obama mystery. We will link to that in the show notes. Thank you very much, Brent. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Richard Palmer, and Brent Noctegall. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Charles Buxton. You will never find time for anything. If you want time, you must make it. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.